You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the show where we take a wander around the week in Apple, Apple News, Reviews, Technology, Associated Products and all sorts of other things that catch our eye. This is another episode of the Essential Apple Podcast. Hello listeners and welcome to this week's episode. Um, Apologies for the late posting of last week's episode. Some life things got in the way, I'm afraid. Um, I will endeavour to get this one out slightly quicker. Um, This week has been a dearth of Apple news. We have got some stories. Uh, The only real uh, thing of interest on the Apple side is an inside joke. Um, And we'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, Mark is doing a 100-mile cycle ride around uh, Birmingham. So good luck to him. And he's hoping to get a fairly good time, I think. That's why he's not here today, by the way. But here, this week, uh, joining me to talk about what Apple news there isn't, is John Chidgey, uh, bubble sort, stalwart, and uh, head of the Engineered Network. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's it's always um it's always nice um to come on a podcast that I've actually listened to um you know for for quite a while. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, well, uh, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about some of the other podcasts that you are involved with, uh, John? Okay. Uh, well, you you mentioned the first one. Um, so I am one of the three uh, members of Bubble Sort. Um, the the original Bubble Sort. There's a sort of a splitter off um series of the TV shows. Which has a whole bunch of other people on them as well, uh, but um, the one that started it all was uh, myself, uh, Vic Hudson, and uh, CW Daily, and um, that's been going now for a couple of years. And it's just a you know fun thing we do periodically. I wouldn't; it's certainly not weekly. Uh, it's only every two to four weeks, depending upon when we can find the time. Just a bit of fun, really. Um, so that's bubble sort. But um, longer than that, I've been also. Uh, I started out most uh, the. I'm most well known for Pragmatic, uh, which has been going since uh, 2013. And um, I, a few years ago, about two or three years ago, I started uh, a, a very small uh, podcast network uh, called the Engineer Network. And um, so I continue to do Pragmatic. I also started another um, podcast, which has turned out to be quite um, popular, called Causality, um, that looks into the cause and effect of, um, of disasters and incidents in history and looking for things that we could uh, learn so that we can prevent them. And uh, it's got a very, um, a very much an engineering bent, as you'd expect uh, from the top of the name of the network. <laughs> and there's a couple other ones on there as well. So, um, so yeah, I've been podcasting a while, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a bit of fun. So yeah, I enjoy doing it. Excellent. Well, um, Bubble Sort is uh, is a fun listen. I'll say that I listened to that. Um, I've had Vic on the show, of course. Um, it, it, it was interesting uh, the other day. I was talking to. Um, I've talked to somebody else. Uh, might have been it. Might it might have been um, Guy, but it, it doesn't really matter. And uh, we were kind of thinking about how you end up getting guests or meeting other people in the you know the podcasting sphere, and it becomes like rock family trees, you know, um, because 
I, um, I've, you know, I've had Scott Wilsey on, uh, Scott Wilsey, I, I can't even remember, uh, where I came across Scott, Scott Wilsey, but he, you know, somebody recommended Scott Wilsey to me, Scott then, uh, pointed me somewhere else and through that I met Vic and then, you know, it's like, and then, mm. and then you realize it's like, um, it's like that thing, and you know, five degrees of separation. It's like because I know that you uh, sometimes podcast. I believe with uh, John Syracuse, don't you? Yeah, I've uh, I've been really fortunate to have some really great um, uh, guests come on the show um, on on Pragmatic, uh, particularly where. Uh, so I had John on just recently. He's been on twice now. Once we talked about RSI. And uh, this time we actually talked about Zelda, which is uh, which was which is a lot of fun because Zelda's my favorite uh, my favorite game of all of all time. I think is reasonable enough to say. Um, not going to include chess in that. That's kind of not what I meant. Board game, maybe, <laughs> no, but yeah. you know. Yes. Anyhow. So yeah, John Syracuse has come on, and and he's uh, he's he's really fun to talk to, and um, his uh, his perspective on things is uh, is very similar to mine. So I kind of. Uh, that's always fun but uh, i've had other other great guests on the show too um uh, marco armet for example um who's been on multiple times uh casey Lewis has been on a few times so i've basically i've spoken to all the atp guys which is always uh, which is really cool and um i also had uh, jason snell on the show and uh, he's coming back on again uh, next episode actually so it's um it's it's great doing pragmatic is as much an excuse for me to talk to other people in the uh, pod podcaster sphere or whatever you want to call it uh, as it is to to dive into tech topics so it's uh it's uh, it's a lot of fun yeah and that's what i'm saying it's like you know five five steps of separation it's um oh yeah you know <laughs> See now I've now I've talked to you. I feel like I'm only one step away from John Gruber, right? And oh, I... really? <laughs> I well, I, actually, I haven't actually spoken to John Gruber. Actually, to be honest, no, I know you haven't. Uh, I know you haven't. But both, you see, both Jason Snell and uh, John Syracuse are, uh, you know, frequently on Gruber's show. So, see, uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. When I can get John <laughs> Gruber to come on this show, then I know I've made it. Uh, okay. <laughs> From what I know of of John John Gruber, he's a, he's a he's a lovely guy, and um he's um he's been very nice in my uh, when I've tweeted back and forth him in the past, and um he even he even interesting funny story when the uh, Apple Watch first came out, and I wasn't convinced about the haptic uh, feedback. I thought it might create a lot of a little bit of noise, and I I said to him, um, "Hey, does it make any noise?" And so he, for me, random guy on Twitter, right, and he locks himself in a cupboard and closes the door and he sends notifications to himself to see how much if he can hear it yeah. nope i just locked myself in a cupboard and i couldn't hear it i'm like oh, wow you didn't have to do that thank you john that's awesome no <laughs> so I, anyway I, love you know i do i i do like the talk show i do like listening to uh john and uh on the whole i tend to agree with the sort of things he says so um I'm just thinking he's way out of my league. But then never say never, you see. Never say never. Never say never. <laughs> because <laughs> podcasting is indeed, you know, a weird rock family tree. And, uh, yeah, through steps of separation, you get people you'd never expect. So, um, shall we move on a little bit? Uh, it's not bugger all on the Apple sphere, other than, of course, uh, lots of pre-WWDC leaks slash rumours slash speculation, which uh, before the show we were basically mocking soundly mm-hmm. um, because I think we're both of the same opinion there, aren't we, John? That You know, you get somebody come on, oh, I did, you know, this leak from Apple means what we will see at WWDC. No, it doesn't. Mm. You're just guessing. You're just guessing. 
Um, no, it's really frustrating because I feel like the uh, the 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 click the most clickbaity of headlines, and I realize that clickbaity isn't a word, but still, it is. Um, oh yes, it is most definitely. No, <laughs> if you, uh, but yeah, those those are the most. Uh, this is the time of year where it gets the worst or the most annoying because everyone's like, well, it's all going to come out in WWDC or there's also another you know, flurry of activity just before the uh, September-October yeah, event timeframe. Yeah, I was going to say, sort of in uh, late August, around my birthday, you'll get all the, what, you know, what will be in the new iPhone? Uh, we declare what we know. Um, I think yeah, uh, exactly. I think Kelly, Kelly Gamont had the best story about that. Somebody she'd worked with that had put a story out, what we know about the next iPhone. There will be one. Dot dot yes. dot. <laughs> That's it. We, there will we most sure definitely be one. <laughs> Anything else is pure speculation. That's it. Oh, it will be a phone. Um, you will probably be able to make phone calls. We're we're <laughs> relatively sure about that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, but yeah, the way so, the way they're going, yeah, pretty soon that's become going to be an optional feature. I think, you know, <laughs> maybe even a premium extra phone calls. <laughs> Possibly. In Funny. <laughs> It's funny how some people have said that, isn't it? it, it the, the smartphone is becoming less and less of a phone as time goes on. But uh, in any case, um, no, the interesting thing I find is that when they go to the next step with these rumors and they say, well, it's not just a rumor anymore. We're going to do is a 3D render of what it might look like. So this is what the product might look like based on an artist's you know, interpretation of some part that was leaked from somewhere in, in, in China in the, uh, in the chain. And it's like a button. So we've extrapolated the rest of the phone from this button. <laughs> from a button, oh, it's like those. Um, I always, I always think that it's like one of those uh, things in a dodgy sci-fi movie where they find, I don't know, like a, a, a dinosaur's toe. You know what I mean? Or mm. one, one toe claw, and mm-hmm. uh, somehow, you know, through the magic of three D rendering, they have this thing where it extrapolates backwards from one claw to draw a velociraptor. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> and the greatest story of that, if you if if anybody uh, follows this sort of thing, when I was a child, there was a, a famous story that the iguanodon, um, mm. which uh, apparently, you know, the the original spike that they found uh, is apparently its thumb. Now, how they know that, I don't know, but apparently that's now it's always represented with this spike thumb on its forelimbs. But the uh, the Victor, I think he was a Victorian, the Victorian um, paleontologist who first found it uh, mm. drew this creature with this spike like a rhinoceros horn because well, it was obviously a spike like that it must be like a rhinoceros horn. Is that not so? So he extrapolated this creature from this horn, which he believed was went on its nose. And then it's turned out later to be completely wrong. <laughs> Man, yeah, that's it. So, hmm. Extrapolating <laughs> from a very small amount of data is a very foolish yeah. thing to do. Um, yes. There we are. Uh, so, yeah, lots of pointless speculation, um, which we're not going to really get involved with. Uh, the first one, so this is almost uh, kind of following on from that. I have a story here, which was um, from Apple Insider. Moving Apple's assembly out of China to avoid tariffs will take multiple years, analyst warns. Um, mm. To which I say, no, <laughs> Sherlock, really? Moving a huge yeah. installed factory base with all its uh, infrastructure and hinterlands to, uh, you know, a, probably another continent might not be something mm. you can pack, you know, in the back of your ute and no, uh, drive down the road. No. Yeah, they tried to shove the factory in their pocket and it didn't fit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's um, 
Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Like you say, a bit Captain Obvious, really. Uh, the the thing that's interesting, though, uh, in that article as well, is that uh, they talked about other. Um, so I think there was mention of uh, setting up factory in India, I think, and there's a few other different countries around the world that will not have those tariffs. And the thing is, surely if you think it through, if if this continues the way it's going, they'll just put tariffs against those countries as well. Ultimately, you know, if that's the intent of the government, they're going to just keep putting more and more tariffs on on more and more countries. It's just you, you, hmm. I think you're fighting a losing battle there. If that's the case, it's sort of yeah. I I, I agree with that. But the other um the other side to that is. Um, although Apple haven't kind of openly said so, there have been kind of hints coming out of Apple that they would like to, to some extent, reduce their reliance on the whole, you know, Shenzhen China yeah. um, hub. Which, you know, I'm I'm no Tim Cook, I'm no supply genius, but um, I think you know, even in uh, even in basic business, putting all your eggs in one basket is never a great plan. Um, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I was. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I was thinking. Putting all your eggs in one basket is never a good idea. And and I think that there there is a lot that has been put into uh, into China and uh, and Foxconn, and they yeah, I think they should be diversifying their supply chain a little bit. But again, not a supply chain genius, but well, it just I, seems to make I, sense. I think. Not exactly a perfect storm, but you can kind of see how it happened because, you know, they started with the iPhone. Where are we going to make the iPhone? You know, we've made all, we've got Pegatron and uh, Foxconn. Um, They say they can handle it. You make a contract with them. You know, they start making it. Obviously, the Shenzhen hub has a whole, you know, inbuilt infrastructure so that a lot of the components are made by other factories not directly necessarily controlled by Apple around that area. You know, there's a whole... I mean, China has literally taken the Shenzhen province, which is, you know, huge. I couldn't tell you exactly how big it is, but probably bigger than the UK, and turned it into one, basically, industrial megaplex. Um, So you can imagine buying into that, Okay, we'll get the phones made here. And then, of course, the iPhone went mega ballistic in in ways that Steve Jobs, even Steve Jobs couldn't have hoped. I mean, what did what did he say um, when they first launched the iPhone? Um, Next year, we'd like to have 10 percent of smartphone sales, I think, which then was, you know, smartphones were hardly a thing. They were kind of emergent. There wasn't that there were none because there were there were oh, yeah, Blackberry. There was Blackberries and there were some um, Nokia type things. And um, I think LG and a couple of others, uh, possibly Sony, were making smartphones. Uh, and of course, before that, obviously, you'd had the uh, Windows mobile things. Um, uh-huh. But I mean, you know, Steve Jobs was hoping to have 10% of this emergent smartphone market. And, you know, what, a decade on? <laughs> mm. <laughs> a decade on, Apple have what what is probably the equivalent of i don't know 12 15% of phones worldwide um and with that you can imagine somebody like foxconn and you know the related industries it, it like how you don't have time i would think in that kind of situation to be worrying about diversifying your supply at the point where you are just constantly trying to ramp up production it makes sense to stick at somewhere where the infrastructure is already there it's very difficult to think about 
um, spreading your production around the world, if you like, whilst you're almost firefighting to keep the things coming off the production line. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're much more engineering. I mean, I'm a graphic designer, not an engineer, but would, would you not think that that is part of the root of the problem? I, I think the problem, yeah, moving all the pieces around and assembling them in one small area, obviously it's going to make it a lot more efficient. So that I think you're saying like the Shenzhen um, hub, I think, and that having that all in the one place does take time to build. And once it's there, it's very hard to get away from it. If they're going to try and replicate that somewhere else, um, it's going to take time and it's going to be very expensive. I actually think about the whole, um, the situation with the Mac Pro. Are they still making the Mac, the new, like the trash can style? They're still making that in the States, aren't they? Well, as I understand it, they were not actually being manufactured in the States. They were being assembled in the States. Oh, so okay. that... Um, parts were being manufactured probably still in Shenzhen um, or at least some of them. I think they might have been making the, the cases in the US, you know, the, the oh, okay, extrude. Right. I, I, I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me. Um, but they mm. were not being wholly manufactured there. They were being finally assembled for sure in the US. I mean, you know, they've talked about places like Brazil, obviously India. They are um, starting up production in India, although, of course, part of that was because to get into the Indian market, uh, the Indian government says you can't sell into the Indian market unless you have a presence there. You have to manufacture um, a certain percentage of what you sell in India, in India. Yes, um, call, right. it, call it protectionism, if you like. But, uh, you know, in a developing country, I think there's a reasonable, I think there's a reasonable amount of, uh, you know, play fair in that legislation. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. you know, rather than, yeah, don't just manufacture your stuff somewhere and then come and sell it to us. <laughs> Could you share mm. some of that around with our economy? That's fair enough. Anyway, um, so yes, there is talk of them, uh, you know, manufacturing in India. There's been talk of them manufacturing in Brazil. I mean, in the past, when people have sort of said, why can't Apple manufacture iPhones in the US? Uh, Tim Cook and some of the others have actually said, well, it's not only would it be prohibitively expensive if we could do it, we cannot actually assemble enough people with the right skills, nor do we have the infrastructure to support it. Um, yeah, and oh, that's exactly right. Exactly. And, and um, the problem, I think, in that respect is that in, uh, in North America, the, the workforce has been... Um, how should I say, um, the, the problem is that there's still a large manual component to assembling these things. And the skill set of the workforce in, in North America and have not been um, trained or encouraged to go down that path, whilst I'm sure that that would not be a problem. I'm sure there would be plenty of motivated people. It's just that there's lots more motivated people uh, that have gone down that path in uh, in China and in parts of India and so on, and um, I think that that's a challenge. And I don't want to that that may sound I don't know how that does sound actually, because the thing is that when you're when you're in North America or you know Australia or UK, I think there's there's certainly a uh, a concept that you will go to school, go to high school middle school, whatever they call it, and um, eventually go to university or college, you know, get an education and get a degree uh, maybe um, or, you know, professional certification and go on and do some kind of, you know, a, a job like working in an office building or something like that. 
um, it's not necessarily pictured uh, as you would be assembling electronics. Um, hasn't been a it hasn't been a skill set that's been encouraged. Um, I think, and that's part of the problem. I think that is part of the problem because although that might be the way um, it's portrayed, particularly yeah, well, what you might say in Western um, countries. Uh, certainly mm. first world countries, if you like. Um, that's not actually the reality for a lot of people, is it? You know what I mean? Um, mm. In America, the you know the, the workforce um, per se, for a large percentage probably of the 20th century, what were considered to be, you know, big industries in, in the US was steel, car manufacturing, uh, those sort of things. And also in the UK, of course. Um, you know, mining steel making ship making i mean those are they're a different skill set to assembling technology mm-hmm. but they are often skill sets which in, in you know their assembly line type like work or building you know if you're a river in a ship <laughs> in a shipyard what you do is put rivets in holes all day every day mm-hmm. um and if you've seen those kind of uh, early 20th century uh, films of of guys actually doing hand riveting those big steel plates for for like yep, yep. chips that mm-hmm. was hard dirty work and also very skilled but yeah. endlessly repetitive a guy chucks a hot rivet with a pair of metal tongs and another guy catches it with a pair of metal tongs and sticks it in a hole and then hammers mm-hmm. the hell out of it um yep <laughs> and uh yep. yeah so if that apparently was considered perfectly you know noble labor what what is um why is that any different from sitting in a clean factory and putting more components onto boards? Um, well, see, it shouldn't be. That's the thing. Exactly. And it, it, why? Yeah. why? What is this Western thing that somehow there's something wrong with working in a factory? You know, large percentages of our populations work in factories and people tend to not even think about it. But if you open a can of beans, somebody somewhere ran the machine that cooked the beans, that put the beans in the tin, that sealed the tin. And put a label mm. on it. <laughs> there are, there are. Yeah, no, the, the the beans came from Tesco's. It's it's not it's not a you know mm. it's just you know there was conception there inception and this, that's all that was. They they got there magically. And this, you're absolutely right. There are plenty of invisible sort of um, jobs that aren't that aren't talked about, that aren't glorified, that aren't you know promoted, uh, but are absolutely essential. And it's it's yeah, it's interesting because. I don't necessarily think it's uh, it's also not just how much you push it. It's also the opportunity was also taken away uh, to an extent, we're, we're like from not just North America, but certainly in Australia as well. I, I can't speak for the UK exactly, but I, I imagine something similar has happened where when I worked for Nortel, and like this is going back 20 years ago, uh, we were doing our own fab of our own, the circuit boards and everything that we were building. They, were, they went into compact PCI chassis and, you know, these boards were quite large boards. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some the dimensions now, but they'd be, you know, like 300 mil by 450 millimeters. Uh, and they were quite large boards and they had thousands of components on them. And the components weren't put on by hand. They were done by pick and place machines and you put it through the uh, the reflow oven and and so on. And then you'd pull the board out and you'd put the uh, do the in-circuit test on it to make sure it worked. Then you put it into card functional test and then you do a final system check and then you would, you know, pack it and ship it but the idea the whole point of that is that there are plenty of manual steps in that process and no it's not as tiny as an apple watch or a smartphone like an iphone 
but it certainly is still a certain skill set, and there's a lot in a lot in common uh, with what uh, with what Foxconn does, for example. Uh, it's just slightly larger, and it's a different market segment. And uh, in the end, there's no reason why you couldn't do that in you know in your in, in America. There's no reason why you couldn't, and there are still plenty of places that do do it. Uh, but maybe the problem is that because so much of it has progressively been sent offshore, that skill set hasn't been developed and, and therefore there haven't been jobs, therefore it hasn't been pushed, therefore you now have a, a skills gap. And the you only way... I think, that- I think that's very much what Tim Cook was implying. Not only is there a skills gap, but mm-hmm. even um, on top of which, you know, we cannot assemble, even if we have the people with the skills, we cannot assemble enough of them in one place in the US. No. To, to make it worthwhile, you know, to make it work. Um, no. In China, as I say, the Shenzhen hub, they've taken a whole province and effectively turned it into an industrial megaplex. Um, yeah. And uh, in China, they can do that because that's the way China works. Uh, you know, if the Chinese central authorities decide that's what they're doing, that's what's going to happen. Um, I can't really see Washington saying, uh, OK, Idaho, uh, as of now, you are going to become... <laughs> the industrial Googleplex of the US. Uh, I don't think it would work. <laughs> the democratic well, process would have people going, you can't do that. Well, in fairness in fairness to Idaho, um, I've been through there. It's really lovely. Um, it's very pretty. But in any case, um, he's hoping maybe they will. I mean, I, I look at uh, look at what Tesla's doing with building their, that, the Gigafactory in Nevada. And, uh, and that thing's enormous. And there's a lot of automation in there. And there's a lot of people that work there. And you know, they're going to be assembling cars out of there at some point. And, you know, it's, um, it's the sort of thing that if, if there was enough investment and if they were serious enough about it, Apple could do something similar. There's no question. Yes, it would mean that they would make, uh, it would cost them more money. There's no question. Yes, they are going to have to, therefore, lose some of their margins. And, and that's, that's, that's just, if that's what the cost of doing business moving forward is, then that's the cost of doing business. I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult topic because you could argue that things should not be as cheap as they are, which is an argument that everyone would say, oh, that's, everything's just so expensive and it's getting more expensive. And it's like, yeah, but you know, compared to what a computer cost 20, 30 years ago when all of that assembly and construction was done um, predominantly in the United States at that point, uh, you could say like the relative cost of a computer these days is, is, is almost, I think it's like 30 to 40% less for, you know, than, than what it was 20, 30 years ago. Well, I've... And- yeah, I've said on this show before, um, yes, relatively over probably the last seven to 10 years, the cost of particularly Apple computers has been slowly rising. However, I would say there was a period where they were not necessarily artificially cheap, but as you say, proportionately way, way cheaper. I mean, people mm. are complaining that, you know, a, a top end um, say uh, iMac Pro, you know, it's going to set you back $6,000 or whatever it is. Um, hmm. Sorry, I remember when the 2FX came out and it was £9,000. Um, <laughs> and that was <laughs> that was a long time ago. I suspect if you uh, allow for inflation, that's probably twenty grand. that machine. Yeah. I remember people practically remortgaging their houses to get their hands on one. Um, hmm. That's true. Uh, so, and I don't want to be, you know, you get off my lawn, you kids don't know how good you've got it. But at the same time, proportionately, technology is ludicrously cheap. Ludicrously cheap. Um, 
Yeah. There we go. That, that's progress. Mm-hmm. Stuff gets cheaper and um, proportionately. And then when there's a price rise, everybody screams, oh, it's so expensive. Unless you're old enough to remember when a pocket calculator, you know, would set you back $250 or something or $500 for the first programmable. So I believe somebody mentioned. Oh, yeah, the, the Hewlett-Packard, um, oh, those graphics calculators, I remember. I, I never owned one, but a friend of mine bought one. It was hundreds of dollars. Um, I, I remember my Casio FX100D was like 60 or $70, and that was just a normal calculator. Well, I'd, anyway. we had a story about, uh, some time ago, we had a story about, oh, it was probably the anniversary of the uh, programmable, first Hewlett-Packard programmable uh, you know, scientific calculators, and um, there was a quote in there about a guy saying that there were, there were students selling their cars. Uh, you know, university students would sell their cars in order to raise the money to get hold of a programmable scientific calculator. So, you know, don't don't tell me your <laughs> don't tell me your Apple Watch is too expensive. There we go. Yeah, well, that's that's absolutely right. And and for the record, I made it through my um, engineering degree without a graphics calculator, and um, it only tripped me up once. There was a there was an exam in my final year that I had to take where it was uh, we had to do a matrix transform for a four by four matrix, and uh, yeah, three by three I could do on paper. Four by four gets really nasty, and uh, I made an error in that. And uh, anyway, never mind. But that's never okay. Mind. That was the only time it ever caused me a problem. Everyone else had their shiny calculators, and I'm like, I had no money, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh well, never. I did not mortgage my car. I also didn't have a car. That's why. I <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't sell my car because I couldn't afford a car in the first place. That's there we right. Are. It made it difficult. Anyway, there we are. Um, well, do we move on? Shall we move on a bit? Well, that was quite interesting. That was quite interesting. Um, Apple's uh, shared a new advert uh, this week called Inside Joke, uh, which promotes iMessage encryption and. Uh, I came across this just before the show and uh, I clicked on it and watched it and it actually made me laugh. And then uh, whilst I was making a cup of tea, I told you to go and watch it, didn't I, uh, John? And uh, it is actually very, very funny. Um, We can't really describe it because that would destroy the point, I think. Although we did, we we did, uh, it's very funny. It's worth a look. It's not very long, is it? What, 50 seconds or something? Minute? Yeah, about that. 45, 50 seconds, something like that, yeah. And Um, the thing that I love about it is that you wonder, where is this going? Where is this going? Oh, okay. Yeah. And it, it, it's it doesn't try to be funny, but it just rubs off and makes makes you laugh. It's just it is it's it's quaint. And, and I, uh, I, again with the whole Apple padlocky thing at the end was cool. Yes, like yeah, that. the little the little um padlock Apple padlock logo, which they've I've mm-hmm. noticed they've used several times recently. Somebody's uh, come up with that as the sort of secure Apple um tag, which is which is very good, yeah, very I like clever. It. I like it. It's very nice and um. Yeah, that I like the filming of it as well, actually, because all, all you really focus on is the uh, participant and their phone, apart from the mm-hmm. reveal, of course, which anyway, there we oh, go. Yeah. So uh, a link to that is in the show notes. And uh, I mean, people, Apple's adverts are always good, although sometimes oh, yeah. the little twee. Um, but this, that one's just, uh, yeah, as you say, it kind of rubs off. By the end of it, you find yourself laughing. Um, yeah, can't help it. <laughs> No, you can't. It's it's one of those. Um, this link is actually from last week. Tim Cook gave an interview um, to, uh, I can't remember who it was now. It was about ABC News or somebody, uh, where he talked about digital well-being and Apple's focus on privacy. Uh, well, it's it's Tim Cook doing 
what Tim Cook uh, does. It, it's worth a listen. Um, he's just reiterating what he says every time, really, that Apple are happy, happy to send, you know, sell you um, the iPhone, but Apple do not depend on you being addicted to your iPhone 24-7 to um, make their money. Um, and, of course, there was a, a, I think there's a bit of kickback in there about the whole screen time thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. And the... Uh... The thing with screen time, I I, I do find that it's uh, it's very useful. I uh, haven't I haven't because I could go further with the kids and I could actually lock down some some of their stuff a bit more, but I haven't done that. I've resisted that urge. Um, I, I sort of use that sort of sparingly, but it it does give you a, a bit more information on on what you're doing and uh, uh, just you you realize how often you're using your device, which is great. And so far as the whole privacy thing goes, I a few years ago, I'm trying to remember. I think it was actually just thinking about it was. Uh, uh, it was a tweet from uh, from Zach Zaichi, uh, and uh, he'd made the statement that um, uh, in the future the differentiator will be privacy more more than the technology itself. And uh, at the time, I sort of thought, well, yes, uh, yeah, that's true. And uh, as years have gone on, and it has become more and more true. And uh, I, I just I see these other companies now, like. Uh, um, I suppose it, it all sort of started falling apart in a big way with um, with the Facebook thing with uh, Cambridge Analytica. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it. I think I wouldn't say falling apart. I think it stuff had been happening, and those of us who you know keep an eye on such things had been um, like Cassandra's crying in the wilderness. Beware, beware the you know surveillance capitalism. And everybody mm. else was going, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm done. Shut up. Stop pestering me. I'm busy on Facebook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what happened, I think, was the Cambridge Analytica scandal not only brought it to the attention of the masses, as it were, uh, not in a denigrating of the masses. I mean, people who, you know, Joe Bloggs, who doesn't necessarily bother to follow all the ins and outs of the technical um, shenanigans, that, oh, they are spying on me. And not only are they spying on me, they're spying on me in massively intrusive and um, all-encompassing ways. Yeah, um, not just slightly, a lot. Yeah, not just a bit. They're not just tracking what you do. You know, they know everything about you. Probably what colour underpants you put on in the morning. You know, this is this is the sort of information they are collecting about you. And so that was a big wake up call. Um, and before that, there had been voices. Obviously, there's always the people who are you might say slightly tinfoil hatted, who are you know it's all bad. Everything it's the work of the devil. Um, through to the rather more nuanced, you know, Mozilla and and uh, obviously we had um, when Proton first uh, launched, we had Andy, Doctor Andy Yen from Proton Technologies on, and he mm -hmm. said, um, and this was a couple of years ago, um, he believed that in the future privacy um, would be a differentiator, and that in fact he could see a market, and that's why you know him and his uh, compatriots, as it were, had started the whole proton technology things that they could see a viable business opportunity in effectively selling privacy as a service and or you know as a as a as a corporate 
selling point. What you know? Mm-hmm. Why should you give us money for our email service and our VPN um, when lots of other people will offer you these things for nothing? Because in exchange for the money we, you know, you give us, we promise not to do anything with your data. In fact, not even to look at your data. Simple as that. Um, it goes into a black box, and we have nothing to do with it. And that is what you're paying us for. In effect. Um, the same way as banks used to charge people to have, uh, you know, safety deposit boxes. What you put in your safety deposit box uh, is hidden from all, including the bank. Um, And that has, you know, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, then I think it made people aware of that as as a reality, not as just some sort of weird, vague, mm, you know, scary stories. Um, And now... Very real for the vast majority of people that up until now had just been ignoring the tinfoil hatters or people that they would call like yeah. you're, you're wearing a tinfoil hat. And it's like, mm, mm. Well, you know. I've been, uh, you know, known to be somewhat tinfoil hatted. Uh, you know, I uh-huh. from the very start, I was, I don't trust Facebook. The whole thing reeks, uh, you know, to me. I don't like the thing. Uh, the, the concept of people, you know, joining people together is fine, but uh, there was just Mark Zuckerberg and the whole Facebook thing right from the very start it was like this smells like a bad fish to me and i'm not having anything to do with it but now of course it, it is it is springing up and i think it's a good thing i mean you've got you've got uh you know browsers are springing up you've got clicks you've got companies like ghostery you've got um browsers like brave and uh yeah, yeah you've got you know credible vpn services which you know people who listen to this show know i bang on and on and on about um but i have i drifted from you should have a VPN on your phone when you use public Wi-Fi to you should use a VPN on your phone most of the time to uh, now I've reached the point of everyone should have a VPN on and it should be on all of the time, even when you're at home, because you can't trust mm-hmm. your ISP not to be spying on you, even if you think that you consider them trustworthy. Um, and if that's tinfoil yeah. hatted, fine. <laughs> Paranoid, yeah, it... you know, <laughs> it's only paranoia if they're not out to get you. Well, that is what they say. Um, and the the thing is, the more you know about uh, the technology, the more you realize uh, just how how easy we have allowed uh, these companies to get access to our our data. And that's um, it's sort of it's it's a little bit scary. And the more the more you know about it, the more you realize you you know you can you can actually do things to protect yourself from it. But the the, the interesting thing is that uh, Apple has for quite some time uh, been quite uh, firm on their direction regarding privacy and they've made no secret of it and they stood up and said well we're not going to let you put a backdoor in our software we're just not going to do it and um, I think they, uh, they've they had debates with the the US government on and off over the years and uh, uh, and so I mean this this article um, the uh, uh, interview for example with with Tim Cook is essentially is him just I, I think reiterating a lot of those points and and it's it's really good to see to be honest because it, it seems to me like uh, it's 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 not quite vindication time but it's it feels like we're on the cusp of that that vindication that Apple have stood their ground and 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 seeing Facebook now starting to fall apart and I mean to, whether or not people say it or not I do think that Facebook is falling apart. Um, because um, the younger generation hate using it, and they've had these scandals now, and it's just getting worse and worse for them. And um, I feel like once once you've had once you've slipped up so badly as they have, then it's difficult to get that. You know, because um, credibility is like uh, it's like glass. Once you once you break it, it's very hard to put it back together again. And so 
I kind of feel like Facebook in the long term is uh, is on the out, and it's uh, I know that it's got a whole but they've got they've bought a whole bunch of companies along the way like Instagram and and WhatsApp and and so on. They had they have a lot more left life left in them, but I do think that it's a slippery slope, and they've started down that slope. Whereas Apple, on the other hand, um, are not in that position at all, and uh, on privacy at any rate. I totally agree with you, and um, it, it, you get the classic sort of yeah but facebook is is king you know facebook uh, rules the world and uh, they're too mighty to to fail and all the rest yeah really what about myspace sorry people you know or friendster or any of the other once you know once king of the hill uh, social social media turns on a on a dime quite literally along with public okay. opinion you know with public mm-hmm. public opinion turns against you you're dead in yeah, social media pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And, I, and and the thing is that Facebook took a long time to build to this size. It will take a long time for it to collapse and it may never completely die, but it'll certainly become so much less relevant when, when the advertisers find the next platform, they'll just go to the next platform. Facebook's revenue will, will dwindle and uh, and that's the end of that. So well, you know, Yeah, you know. for example, MySpace isn't dead. You can still go to MySpace no. and it is a niche social network has become... Um, mm. If you go there, it's very much centered around uh, musicians and, um, if you like, up-and-coming bands who wish to kind of uh, communicate with their fans. Um, and that's great. But, it, you know, once upon a time, MySpace was, you know, if you weren't on MySpace, you, who were you? Um, there we go. Uh, yeah. And spinning off from that, uh, we're talking about uh, Facebook. I've got a story down here, which is um, Facebook... Yeah, am I right? Apologies to the Verge cast on that one. Um, Facebook sues South Korean analytics company to send message about privacy to app developers, apparently. Uh, this was in the Washington Post. There's also a version of it in Forbes, but um, after, you know, Forbes of the clickbaity headline. Um, it, I read this story, and Facebook are suing a South Korean analytics company who allegedly according to Facebook, you know, illegally um, harvested user data um, from inside Facebook and uh, then used it to sell um, services to advertisers. Um, And Facebook are now suing them because they want to prove that they are cracking down on people who break the rules. Um, And you know what it smacks off to me, John? Uh. It smacks to me of Facebook are bloody annoyed that these Korean people have been harvesting the data and using it to make money, and that money should have gone to Facebook. It's their info that they stole from the users and that no one else should have the right to be using it to make any money. It belongs to Facebook. That's what it smacks off to me. I'm sorry. That's sour grapes and um, PR front, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I hadn't uh, I hadn't come across this one, but uh, it's um oh god. If that's true, then it sort of it feels very much like uh um yeah, so Facebook are basically slapping another another of their um people on the back of a their back of the wrist for something that Facebook got slapped in the back of the wrist for themselves. It sounds to me, you know, we're cracking down on people using Facebook to harvest user data. Really? No, that looks yeah. like a PR stunt and the fact that you're annoyed that these Korean people are in effect directly competing with you using mm. your own platform. Sour mm. grapes and PR. Sorry. That's but then uh, I don't like Facebook, so I'd have I take a very dim view. <laughs> Perhaps I'm being overly well, thing, harsh. 
Oh, no, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. But I mean, the, the thing with Facebook for, for me personally is that I try to dis- my, distance myself from it wherever I can. I don't follow very many people or friends, sorry, very many people on Facebook. Um, my wife uses it. I ask my kids about it. Hey, you know, did you see what, whatever on Facebook? And like my, my oldest daughter, she'll say, well, um, Facebook's for old people. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Facebook. Exactly. Please, it's not the hip and trendy are not on Facebook. Facebook. No, they aren't. And this is the whole problem is that when you've got a technology like Facebook and if your demographic is the aging demographic, that's the wrong demographic because they're not the ones that are going on about it. They're not the ones that are feeding it the next generation. Well, of, of course, the thing the thing is, I think that Facebook was when it, you know, when it boomed, it was hip and trendy. But oh, yeah. then everybody kind of everybody got in on it because it got huge PR. And then, yeah, it was the parents and the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and everybody else. And now, of course, young people don't want to be on Facebook because they don't want everybody else knowing what they're talking about, especially not that creepy old uncle who only ever turns up at Christmas and gets plastered. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um no, yeah. you know, and and it is, it is fun. It's like, oh, well, why would I go on Facebook? Because it's full of my grandmother, you know, asking my aunt how her varicose veins are. No, oh. I've I've turned off all my notifications from Facebook unless I get tagged directly in something and uh, it keeps the amount of noise to a minimum. So I uh, I tend to avoid Facebook and, and my wife will say, oh, you missed this thing on Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Um, if you want, yeah, anyway, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so that was that. Uh, I thought, uh, John, uh, especially with your engineering background, we could perhaps talk a bit about. Uh, I don't have a direct story here, although you found one to uh, put in the show notes about the whole right to repair argument. Oh, sure. Um. Yeah. Um, so, just oh. um, um, just to talk a little bit about what the whole right to repair thing. It's 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 sort of, it's a movement, right? Isn't it? Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And the idea is that technology these days has become um, too tightly, uh, too compact and too difficult um, to for an individual to repair should they want to. And hence that if it breaks, you have to throw the whole thing out and buy a whole new one. And you could say that if something's cheap, that's no big deal, maybe, because maybe it is actually cheaper to throw it away than to buy a new one. And I think that's probably true of certain things. Uh, but then again, if it's not, and it's only one uh, thing inside it that is easy enough to replace if it had been designed a bit better, then why would you then spend all that extra money when you could just re- repair that and uh, and be up and running again? Uh, but of course, the other, there's, a, there's, there's a couple of sides to this. Um, uh, we, we talked about briefly, and I think that's, the the pressure from manufacturers is um, okay. Well, when you're designing something, there's there's design for testability, and there's also design for manufacturability and design for repairability, and they're all very different things. And you can design something to be very easy to manufacture, um, uh, easy to maintain, let's say, but it could be impossible to repair. And a case in point is. I don't know, look at the Apple Pencil and look at AirPods. And that that's, an, I think, for me, I'll be honest, that's one of my current frustrations on my AirPods. So I, AirPods are nearly two years old and battery life in them has become abysmal. And uh, yeah, if I use them for, let's say, uh, an hour listening to music, they're flat. And uh, if I'm talking on a phone call, 
then it'll be half that, like 30 minutes or something like that. It's terrible. It really is bad. And you have to do the whole left left earbud, one in the charger, one in your ear, and then swap them out again <laughs> after it's charged <laughs> in order to maintain a phone call. It's really, really annoying. And of course, the problem with these is they're not designed to be repaired. Uh, they're filled with glue and uh, the plastic that uh, surrounds the lithium-ion battery in each of the stalks. Uh, it's it's pretty well, it's pretty packed in there, right? And you're not going to get that apart in any way that's going to like you if you got a uh, a putty knife uh, or a stanley knife depending upon what you want to call it or a box cutter that's another one mm. all names for similar things in other words a sharp razor blade like device and you actually cut this thing open and, and tried to replace the battery assuming that you could you'd never seal it again it would probably look like some kind of plastic massacre <laughs> with tape around it <laughs> So I don't know how well that's going to work, but in any case, it's not designed to be repaired or replaced. The, once the battery's gone, it's gone. You can throw out your $150, $200 you know, headphones and say, well, it was a good two years, had a good two-year run, bye-bye. And, and, that's, uh, and that sucks, right? Because then you're going to buy more. It's good for Apple in the sense that I now have to buy more headphones. But you know, if it's really just the battery and there's nothing else wrong with it, if that was a repairable battery, then that would be awesome. And maybe you know, I've chosen a very bad example because AirPods are teeny tiny and there are very no, few. I, actually, I don't. Yeah, and there probably are very few earbuds you can buy which are in the least bit repairable. But actually, the, this is there are two sides to this argument. Um, and in the tech press, they seem to have concentrated very much on um, you know, computers and uh, phones and you know, Apple watches and the like. Um, and probably because that's obviously their focus of attention. The right to repair movement expands, obviously, in, into much larger areas. Um, and in some other areas than, if you like, high tech, it can make uh, rather more sense. So some of the things you hear put forward against the right to re re uh, repair movement um, might be valid in some cases, but uh, don't really apply. For example, one of the things that started... Uh, the whole thing is that John Deere um, are selling, you know, vastly expensive giant uh, farm machinery, tractor, combine, harvester type things. Um, and they are effectively, uh, you know, they're DRM. Uh, if the damn tractor breaks down in the middle of your field, um, you're not allowed to do anything. You have to call John Deere and they have to come out with their little diagnostic laptop and find out what's wrong with it and fix it. Um, now, that's not really acceptable, is it? A farmer in his field cannot, in any way, shape or form, attempt to fix this tractor, which, by the way, you know, is probably, I don't know, half a million dollars or something. Who knows? Um, or your washing machine. You know, and that's a classic, isn't it? A washing machine, not vast, uh, you know, vast amounts of money, maybe. But again, quite often when these, when a washing machine breaks down, what actually has failed in it will be the water pump or um, the electric motor. You know, these things mm -hmm. could be relatively easily fixed. Um, and to some extent, maybe a washing machine is a bad, a, a bad example because most of those are actually reasonably easy to fix. But... Um, yeah, things like AirPods. How difficult would it be to design the AirPods to be, you know, almost as sleek and perfect as they are, but to be able to replace the battery? Even if you couldn't replace anything else in them, John, if you could just replace the battery, 
would that not be a win not only for the right to, if not repair, at least to extend their life? And certainly from a, you know, from a green perspective would be a very good thing. This is one of the few things, you know, I'm I'm not Mr. Ecology, but I'm not Mr. Trash the Planet either. Um, it does annoy me when you have these small electronic devices and they, you know, whether they've got nickel cadmium or lithium ion or whatever in them and you can't replace it. What are we doing? You know, what are we doing? We're making this stuff and then, you know, you're not supposed to put lithium ion in the trash. You know, you don't want to be poisoning the earth with nickel cadmium. So what do we do with these damn things when they're dead? And uh, some of them are so hard to get apart, you're not even going to recycle it, are you? How are you going to take it apart to recycle it? No, exactly. It's uh, it. I think, like I said, the reason I chose the AirPods as a as a bad as suggested that they are a bad example is because there are no easy, um, there's no existing battery form factor that would fit in in one of those that I'm aware of. I'm I'm sure there's some somewhere, but it's it's going to be very rare. And um, you know, the the thing that I found interesting, I had a uh, Microsoft Surface there for a while. The company provided with one, I didn't buy it with my own money. Um, but it had the uh, the Surface Pencil or Surface Pen, sorry, and the Surface Pen's got a four uh, A, so like a quad A, not a double A or a triple A, a quad A battery in it. And this thing's really really skinny, but it is actually a genuine form factor, and you can actually go to Officeworks and buy these things in a pack of two, and they're hideously expensive, but they do exist. And that pen is really not that much thicker than the Apple Pencil, so theoretically they should be able to make. Um, a standardized form factor out of a, a quad A battery, and that would be fine. That would work, and you could have that as a lithium-ion battery, and you could use that in an Apple Pencil, for example. If you if you actually cared and interested in that, you could do it. Um, maybe not so much for the um, AirPods, but you certainly could for the laptops. That's another one. And and going back, oh, is it ten years? It, it, it feels like less than that. Maybe it was only eight years, but. All the MacBook Pros came with replaceable batteries. Um, before this, before pre-unibody, um, maybe it was ten years. Time flies, and you're having fun. But you know, well, I had um, um, I had a twenty a twenty twelve MacBook Pro, the last of the uh, it was a unibody, but it was the last of the fat ones. It still had the DVD drive in. Um, okay, and I think. That was, well, I say unibody, I guess maybe it's not technically because you could take the bottom off it. It took like eight screws and the bottom plate came off to reveal mm-hmm. all the insides. And that had a removable battery. You had to, you know, unplug it and take a couple of screws out, but then you could take out the battery and it was a standard rectangular type thing and you could go buy another one, you know, whether an official Apple one or a Chinese knockoff, should you, you know, and put it in and put the plate back on and your and your laptop would work. Um, and you could then mm-hmm. send that battery, obviously, to an official battery recycling plant to be dealt with. Um, some of the... Um, some of them, I, I don't know, because you've got things like the Air, where they've got this weird stepped-shaped <clears throat> battery, haven't you, that looks like a, looks like a terraformed Chinese hillside. For, um, <laughs> um, and I think those are glued in, aren't they? They're glued into the case. Yeah. So that they've been starting to do more and more of is, is holding things together with, with, with glue internally. I mean, when I say they, I mean Apple, sorry. And um, I don't know. See, there are reasons why some things are not particularly repairable you know your iphone is is waterproof it's you know water resistant sorry tim um (laughs) um the stuff is jammed in there i'm not sure that many people would really feel that they want to go inside there um 
Sure, there are complaints about you know, replacing the batteries, but you can go to Apple and they will replace the battery for you. Um, so that, I, I, you know, there, there are complaints, for example, mm. like there were things about the, um, the Touch ID button and saying that if, if a third party tampers with it, then it breaks Touch ID. Um, and is that, you know, is that acceptable? Uh, that, that's a thorny issue because Apple bring up, well, if you're going to let third parties start mucking about with security, devices um you know the touch id or face id cameras or whatnot then you have to give them access to the secure enclave and if that information is available it wouldn't take long for bad actors as they like to describe them to be uh getting into people's phones and doing unpleasant things uh so that's uh, yeah yeah look, that's that's true that's true but uh the the analog i'd like to suggest is Think about uh, wristwatches, and I'm obviously not talking about the Apple Watch specifically, talk about any other classic watch. And a a classic watch where it is powered by a battery, so a a quartz battery watch, and you've got a CR, well, not a 2032, but a small watch battery in there. If that that watch manages to be, most of those watches manage to be waterproof, and you can still take them to a jeweler, uh, and they will... Uh, that they have the equipment necessary to uh, repressurize the case and reseal it after they've changed the battery. So technically, uh, and it's going to cost you money to do it, but you know what? That's fine, right? So you buy a watch and every two to five years, depending upon the watch and how big the battery is and so on, you take it back and they'll they'll fix that for you. They'll get you put a new battery in and your watch is good to go for another two to five years. In, and you can do that at any jeweler you like. Pretty much. And if you have the right equipment, you could probably do it yourself. So I guess to me, that's the way that the level of repairability, if you've got waterproof devices, that's the price you're probably going to have to pay for it. And uh, I think that it, that Apple have, in, in some of their devices now have gone too far down the road of even that's not possible. And uh, because of things like the secure enclave and that, that that's just a consequence of their design choice. But if you're talking about things like just replacing a battery, it's gotten to the point where they can't do it in the Apple store out the back anymore. They've got to send it away and have someone try and do it. <laughs> Placing the screen has gotten better for some models. I know that was hard for a while. I don't know. Design for repairability of the two things that most often break on a smartphone should be easy to replace screen and easy to replace battery. And and they should be no-brainers for the average person to be able to do read either Apple themselves or any qualified repair um, people. And uh, from a technology standpoint, I think the right for repair, right to repair, is uh, is is about uh, the ability to actually do something without being forced down that path of um, it's broken, go buy a new one, or you know, like you say, you've got to get John Deere to come out with a laptop to get your tractor to go again. Yeah, and um, it it is a, a thorny issue, and there are a lot of sides to it. There's the eco side to it. You know, why are we making things where you know nasty chemical batteries are fixed in in ways that effectively are impossible to get out? How do you deal with that when the damn thing's deceased? Um, the one thing that really does bug me. Uh, when we're talking about Apple, less so with the phone, but uh, when you're talking about desktops and laptops, um, I've got a 27-inch uh, iMac at work, the 5K, and I persuaded my boss to purchase that one as opposed to the slightly cheaper 24-inch model, is it? Or 21-inch? I can't remember. Anyway, the slightly smaller one. 
Yeah. Yep. Because the slightly smaller one, you have to buy the RAM when you buy the machine because the machine is sealed. Um, by purchasing the more expensive 27-inch, which has a user-accessible hatch on the back through which you can um, insert or change your RAM, uh, it, we, we saved enough money by basically buying a 27-inch iMac with the base amount of RAM and then buying third-party RAM from Crucial and uh, opening the little hatch and popping it in because Apple charged such extortionate rates for RAM. Um, and there's no excuse for that. Sorry, that's just profiteering. Um, and that's fine, okay? But I think that's the only model of, of a computer that Apple sell where you can do that. Why, you know, why can we not have a little door to put RAM into our machines? Um, and, hand, and hard drives as well. At work, uh, my production manager has a 27-inch iMac. Uh, probably nine years old now. Um, and on Friday, he realised that he was having problems and he suspected that the hard drive might be suspect. Um, so obviously what would, you know, in most computers, that's all right. Back up the data or, you know, take out the hard drive, put in a new hard drive or an SSD and restore from backup and you're good to go, right? Uh, except how do you get into this 27-inch iMac? You have to heat up the screen to soften the glue, to prise the glass off, to, you know what I mean? And get the screen out and then you look at the how-to, you've got to practically disassemble the whole internal subframe to get to the hard drive. Why can there not be a door on the back of the damn machine to take out a hard drive and put in a new hard drive? We're talking about a desktop here. No, not a, yeah. We're not talking about a phone or a watch where, you know, the engineering tolerances have to be, you know, down to a thou. No, mm. really? You know, why? Uh, uh, so I have a personal thing about why does the iMac have to be bloody three millimeters thick at the edge it's a desktop mm. right it's a desktop. Yeah, it, why could you it, why could you not leave it with bloody flat edges so that the damn ports could be on the edge of the machine not around the back where they're bloody you have to break your arm to try and plug something in sorry that really just one of those things that really cried my gears um yeah it, it, but just just on that point before we move on though um oh look i i completely agree i i find that the i can understand the drive to make something thinner and lighter and more portable um, in the case of a, a laptop. You know, that makes sense. In case of a phone, that makes sense. Uh, Apple Watch, you know, again, smartwatch, you know, again, makes sense. But when it comes to a desktop machine, um, weight is not an issue because I'm not carrying this thing ever. It's sitting on a desk. And so weight is not a problem. So it could be as heavy as you like and the desk will be fine. Uh, in terms of the depth, I'm only ever looking at the front. So if this thing has three mils of depth around the edge, it makes no difference visually as I look at the screen uh, if it goes back 30 millimeters or three millimeters, makes no difference. And all that extra depth, you would get better cooling, easier repairability, and it would take up no additional, no, no real significant additional space whatsoever because you're not going to mount this direct in such a way that that extra 27 millimeters of thickness is going to change whether or not it'll fit on a visa mount because it won't, whether or not it won't make any big difference there. It'll make no difference to how it stands uh, like on a stand in front of you. And it's generally not flat up against a wall. And if it is, 27 millimeters on the edge is going to make no difference because because of the cantilever you need to have for the mounting bracket on the back of it, you're not going to, you can't do anything with that space. The only thing that it does is it makes it look nicer when you're looking side on and that's it. Everything else, it adds no value at all. 
You don't need to do that. It doesn't need to be light. It doesn't need to be thinner. It doesn't it's not trying to be aerodynamic it, unless you're working <laughs> in a wind tunnel. Yeah. You know, it's like, what's the point? There is no point. There is and no point in that at all. And I, it, whilst you know, going along with that, what I'm saying is, I, I don't, I don't begrudge Apple, you know, saying, well, you can't take the logic board out, or it's very difficult to do that, right? Because it's behind the screen and whatnot. That I, that can live with, right? Because if the logic board fails, you're going to have to take the machine to somebody who is competent at doing such a thing in the first place. It's not really a user serviceable part. But why can we not have a little door on the back to, you know, service your RAM and your hard drives? I mean, these really should be user serviceable, shouldn't they? Well, they were not that long ago. Exactly. That's the thing that's really annoying. Um, and as I say, my 2012, uh, you know, my 2012 MacBook Pro, you could turn it over, undo some screws, take the bottom plate off, and the whole gubbins was exposed to you. Um, thus, uh you know, at one point I took out the DVD drive and replaced it with an SSD in a DVD drive shaped caddy. Um, and you could change the hard drive and you could take the battery out. And actually, if you really wanted to, you could take all the screws out and take the uh, take the motherboard out. Um, and I understand with things like the, the air, um, you know, and the thing with the glued in weird shaped battery and all the rest. OK, but surely it wouldn't still would not be beyond possibility to have a plate to allow you to get to the SSD. Why is the SSD bloody glued down and soldered onto the motherboard? That even in the thinnest of laptops, you cannot tell me that there is no way that they cannot be connected with a standard bloody connector. It's just, I, I don't get that. I don't get that at all. Um, well, that makes two of us. <laughs> I don't get it I don't get it at all because that, no matter how sleek and lovely it makes your laptop, it makes the damn thing basically completely irreparable almost. You know, you, you have the situation where even if you take it to Apple, they will pretty much either have to swap it out or, uh, you know, it it's either almost impossible for them to repair, which is why a lot of the time they just give you another machine. If you're in, yeah. you know, if you've got Apple Care or whatever, they just go, I oh, have another, have another one. They probably send the old one back to bloody what's his name, Liam in Shenzhen, to take apart. But um, <laughs> you know, yeah. no, I don't, and and that is very much. I, I, I don't want to say I support the right to repair at any cost because. If you're not careful, if you go too far down that road, what you end up is uh, with laptops that look like they looked like 15 years ago. You know, it's a shoebox with a, you know, with a clip-on keyboard and a box of replaceable components in a box. Um, and I, I don't want necessarily to go back to that. But I also don't want to live in a world where we're manufacturing laptops that when they've had their, you know, three to seven years in the sun are dreadful what you know 21st century clag destroying mm. the planet because there's almost no way to take it apart what you're going to do with it it you can make it out of the most recyclable components in the world but if you then glue it into a huge blob so you can't separate them how do you recycle them yeah exactly so the interesting the interesting thing is that one of the other counter arguments that's applied is that things with memory is a good example is that uh, with memory, because there's all those different uh, pins that need to connect into the socket from the actual uh, the memory card itself, that you know that those are potential points of failure. So if you have sockets and sockets are unreliable, you know they get dirt in them, they they can corrode and so on and so forth. Whereas if you were to directly solder them onto the circuit board or the motherboard, 
than or logic board, whatever you want to call it. Um, the problem with that is that um, you know you you eliminate that problem, so you don't have that problem, and that's one of the counter arguments. I, I do from my reliability days. I, I know that that is true. That yes, indeed, you will have less issues. Um, but then again, the issues that you might have are generally not terminal. So if you have a, a memory stick that's a bit dodgy for some reason because you've got some dirt or grit or a little bit of corrosion. It's actually easy to take it out, clean it off, and put it back in again. Now you could argue that Apple might have said, "Well, we're sick of doing that because our Genius Bar got flooded by people that are having issues with their user replaceable RAM." And I'd like to. What I don't know, but I'd like to know, is if that was actually a significant, measurable problem. Because I don't think it would have been. I think the vast majority of people that bought their machines with the, the factory fitted RAM left that RAM in there. It was only the geeks like us that would get in there and open the door and, and would even dare to play with it. And in our case, if we dared to play with it, we, we also dared to pull it out and fix it. And we could easily do that as well. So taking that option away for the people uh, to do that and saying, well, we're not going to allow you to repair that yourself. It's now permanently soldered on. So now if there's a problem on the on the RAM or at all uh, on, on a logic board where it's been uh, soldered on, you're just straight out of luck. Chuck it away. Bye-bye. Um, whereas if it had been repairable, it wouldn't have been an issue. So it's a, a bit about user upgradability, and maybe I'm crossing the streams a little bit there, but the, the fact is that um, repairability should be based on what are the things that most likely fail and what are the things that are easiest uh, for us to actually allow uh, someone to repair as, as easily as possible, design it to make it repairable. It doesn't have to be everything, not every single component. And uh, you know, th there's plenty of options to do that in a laptop and a desktop. And I hope that this whole right to repair thing does drive us back down that path that we used to be down not that long ago. And let's be honest that in terms of all of the manufacturers that are driving it, Apple's been driving it the most. And most of the other manufacturers haven't been doing this. And, and I hope that this is something that people can stop saying that design, that, that, that Apple's industrial design is, is, is the best. And it, it's like in, there are some aspects of it where it isn't. And this is one of those examples where we need a course correction. And I certainly do hope that uh, this whole right to repair thing uh, bears some fruit in that respect, at least with Apple gear anyway. And, and maybe the, the John Deere tractors as well wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> so there we go. Um, yeah, I, I'm with you. I would like to see, unsurprisingly, I'd like to see a middle course. I would like certain things which, as you say, common points of failure or user upgradability. You know, back in the day, you used to buy um, an Apple machine and Apple were always stingy with RAM. And you'd buy a machine and it would come with, uh, let's say, 512 meg or one gig of ram and uh, that would be adequate probably for you know the the programs the environment at the time that that machine was shipped but you know three four years down the line that machine would be struggling and you would go to crucial or or somewhere and you would buy some more ram and you would open the little door or you know in the, in the laptops you'd lift up the keyboard or whatever and you would take out the 512 chip or the 2256s or whatever was in there and toss them in the box of crap ram that you have in the corner like all of us um, and you would fit in, you know, let's say two, you know, two gigabytes uh, in two shiny new chips and put it in. And lo and behold, your machine would be good for another three or four years. Um, and the same thing to some extent with hard drives. You know, I remember when a one gigabyte hard drive was massive. We'd been going along with 300 meg, 500 meg, 700 meg. And then all of a sudden there were, it was like, it was one gigabyte drives. Then it was two gigabyte drives, then tens, then twenties, you know, then 
up into 50s, 100, and now we're talking in multiple terabytes. Um, and if you have an older machine and it's got a weedy, you know, had a weedy little hard drive in it because you bought the base model and Apple stingily only gave you a 250, you know, gig hard drive, you could go and buy a, I don't know, Samsung or Corsair or whatever it is, you know, two and a half inch rotational drive and you could get a one gig or whatever and stick in there. Um, not gig, terabyte, a one terabyte or whatever. Um, and extend the life of your machine considerably. Um, and with the sh- shift to SSDs, of course, we've actually gone backwards. We're going down from two terabyte and one terabyte storage devices in our machines. And we crashed back down to, well, let's face it, the first ones were 64 gig. I mean, almost unusable, realistically. Um, I The machine I've got now has got 256 SSD. Um, that's workable with cloud storage and various other workarounds. But when you come from a machine with with a a 512 SSD and a one terabyte rotational drive in it, that kind of hits you quite hard. Um, and the ability to be able to, you know, in the future, take out that SSD and put in a larger one would extend the life of the machine by years. Um, and I, yeah, the, having that taken away just feels spiteful to some extent. Um, and no number of excuses about soldering it on makes it better or paired, you know, paired um, RAM modules and whatnot. That's all bobbers as far as I'm concerned. It um, just seems like a spiteful way to force you to buy the most expensive Apple when you buy a new one because you've got to try and predict how much RAM you're going to want in five years' time. I think the thing with the the, uh, the Apple RAM is that um, they'll go through a qualification process and they'll say, this is the RAM we certify. It's going to give us the least amount of problems and um, because we've put all this extra time and effort into validating it, we're going to mark it up a stupid amount of money. Um, but if you use this RAM, it's going to give you the best possible outcome. And the thing is that there's no comparison and there's no contrasting with that with, you know what, we've got this RAM from uh, our um, other world. Hang on. Other OWC, world computed, up, yeah. yeah. Them. And, uh, and it's going to be 99.99999% some ridiculously amazingly perfectly fine number (laughs) and if you use that ram you might have to reboot your computer once a year and it's like hmm let me see it's a a third or half the price and hmm if i could fit it myself why wouldn't i and it just you know i mean it's like the equation that the 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 equation in apple's head i don't get it and i say apple's head it's a company not a person you know what i mean i don't know I don't get it. The equation seems insane to me. That's just completely out of whack. And as I say, by buying a 27-inch iMac or persuading mm. my company to buy me a 27-inch iMac um, and then putting in our own RAM, I managed to get a better computer uh, with more RAM for the same price because the crucial RAM was a fraction of what the RAM in the uh, in the 21.5-inch cost. And I have the option in the future when the... 24 gig or whatever I've put in there. can't remember now, but it doesn't matter. You know, enough for what I need now. In some years' time, when the latest version of Adobe CC needs, you know, at least 32 gig of RAM or something to run, I can open that little door and either add or replace the RAM and extend the life of my machine. Um, Mm -hmm. And not being able to do that just seems spiteful. I'm sorry, it just seems incredibly spiteful. I can I can understand it in a watch and even a phone, but when you come to a laptop and a, and a desktop, I don't. I just there we are. 
Uh, that's enough about that, I think, because we're obviously both getting, <laughs> getting on our high horses. We're getting on our right. high horses. And the time yeah. is, uh, time has been going on. So, uh, John, this is the bit where we do the wrap-up. So where we wrap-up is where you get to plug uh, your various endeavours online or other ways. And uh, awesome. uh, take it away, John. Plug yourself. All right, cool. Um, uh, we did talk about this a little earlier before, but um, I uh, I do have a, um, a small network of shows that I um, produce, and uh, one of them is, uh, is Pragmatic. The other is uh, uh, Causality and Analytical. Uh, other show network is also is, uh, there is Nutrium. Uh, you can find all of that at engineered.network. And um, I'm also uh, one of the three hosts of uh, Bubble Sort, and that's at bubblesort.show. Uh, and you can find it there, along with the Bubble Sort TV stuff that uh, Vic and friends are working on as well. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me on um, the Fediverse, which is what I like to call it. I don't like to call it Mastodon anymore because Mastodon is just one of the uh, activity pub uh, applications that are out there. There's also Pleroma and MissKey, and there's a few other different ones as well. So they just refer to it all as the Fediverse. So if you want to get in touch with me, the best way is on the Fediverse. And that's at chigi at engineer.space. And you just type that in and search in any of uh, any Mastodon instance, any Pleroma or MissKey instance, and you'll find me there. Okay. Right. And you are, of course, on Twitter. I am on Twitter occasionally. If you do at mention me, I will always respond to you for sure. And you can also direct message me as well. Uh, and that's fine too. I uh, I do drop, I, I do duck in and out of Twitter from time to time. Very good. Okay. Well, I am, of course, on the Twitters as at Serenak, and that's S E R E N A K. Uh, the show occasionally tweets as at Essential Apple. Uh, you can find all of our stuff over at EssentialApple.com. So uh, that's about it. Thank you for coming on the show, John. Well, thanks, um, for, thanks for inviting me. Oh, uh, that's fine. Uh, this is also where I thank uh, all the slackers for all the stories they put in the Slack room. This is where I thank the people who support us, whether by Patreon or Pinecast Tips Jar or otherwise. And uh, that's about it for this week. We will finish with John Nemo and his hardware store. And uh, John, Chidji and I will say goodbye. So, goodbye. Goodbye. We received two Apple Watch straps here at the hardware store from our friends at Urban Armor Gear, UAG. The active strap and the leather strap. The leather strap comes as two pieces. It's a very nice medium brown leather with very rugged black hardware fitting pieces. Looks like it'll last a lot longer than the watch. Easy to snap into place, easy to attach on your wrist. It'll be a little stiff at first because it is true leather. This is definitely stylish, rugged, and well-designed and well-crafted. The active strap is a gray and black and white camouflage design. And this uses Velcro, a short piece, which is the buckle, and then the longer piece, which is the strap part. If you've ever changed your Apple Watch straps, which I know many of you have, you'll be familiar with this way of switching over. But please go to the website because they have video and Simon will provide the link in our show notes for this episode of Essential Apple. Prices are 60 and $70. So they're at the high end of aftermarket Apple Watch straps, but they're also at the high end of quality and performance. I've used and reviewed cases from UAG before, and these things are really tough and solid, especially their iPad and iPhone cases. So these arrived unannounced, unsolicited. They're definitely worth continuing to support this company and to carry them 
here in Nemo's hardware store. And please follow the links, as I said, to learn more about them and to see if these straps, active and leather, are suitable for your wrist and your Apple Watch. And while you're there, poke around and see the other stuff at the UAG website. You'll be surprised what good quality they have, especially for durability and ruggedness. Back next week. And thank you, as always, John, for that hardware store. And, of course, all the links will be in the show notes. You've been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. And I'd like to say, if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both Patreon and the Pinecast Tips Jar, where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show. Uh, Or even, if you're really keen, you could set up a recurring payment. And thank you very, very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club Podcast, the Geekiest Show Ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh, Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I've forgotten. So why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcast, and take a listen. This is Mike's computer. I really think you need to listen to Geekiest Show Ever. Melissa, Elisa and Mike work really hard to make a good podcast that will last the test of time. They are smart, informative and concise. Who am I kidding? They show up and talk for an hour or so and I have to listen to their dribble. I beg you listen to the podcast so I feel like my life has meaning and I won't go into a kernel panic and end it all. Listen to the geekiest show ever on the MyMac Podcasting Network. Bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. Morning, Simon. I'll give you an update for the Birmingham Velo. Ah, blimey. So it's nine o'clock something, and I'm on the Birmingham Velothon, and I'm just at mile 30. A few small problems along the way. Number one, in the the holding pen, some chuff nut decided, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to clatter into you. Sent me spiraling onto my back, and this is before I'd even started. Uh, Went down the road, and then the... uh, the mile 17 rest stop, where I really needed to um, evacuate my bowels, I was for the other ride only. So I then had to go another 15 miles uh, to be able to uh, relieve oneself. Um, yeah, it's not too bad so far. I'm having to do a different strategy this, on this event. So my cycling uh, training has not been too good. So I'm taking it nice and slowly and easy on the hills like an old duffer and then just trying to get a bit of the hammer down on the straights. Uh, so, very quick break here. I don't want to hang around too long. I'm desperate for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Um, I'm going to have my banana, and uh, yeah, I'll crack on. Um, God, I just wish people had some riding manners. The amount of people that have just swung out on me. Oh, you think they'd know better. Right, I will give you an update um, on the next stop, which I, to be honest, I have no idea where it is. I think it's another 30 miles. So, speak to you in a bit, uh, and uh, yeah. Oh, hello again. Right, so it's 11.43 and uh, I've done 65.8 miles 
in three hours 51. So now it's gotten a little bit interesting. There's a very, very slim chance that I might be able to do the 100 under six hours or near as damn it on the six hour mark. Now that's gonna take some pushing, but if I can get, well, I've got nine minutes to bash a few miles through. So it's not in the realms of impossibility. So I'm here at the stop. Uh, I'm going to have crisps, banana and everything. I want all the food, all the chocolate, all the snacks. Cause I didn't really, uh, on my last stop, I didn't really um, fuel up properly at all. So yes, <clears throat> it's suddenly got a little bit interesting. Uh, I think there's maybe one more stop after here, not entirely sure, uh, but yes, onwards and upwards. I need food and a wee. Cheerio. Right, so sit rep time. It's now five past one, near and near a day, bounce. Done 79 miles in four hours 36, which is about an hour and 24 to do 21 miles. It's slightly possible. Uh, my next pit stop is at mile 86. Uh, I reckon I can do it if the hills are okay. But the problem is my bladder. It's like every time I go to a pit stop and I have something to drink, I'm so a few miles down the road, and my bladder's giving way. So that's sort of, ugh, it's not making it comfortable. So very quick stop here, and I will update you when I hit mile 86. Bugger. It's mile 86, last pit stop, and uh, at mile 80, it said it gets lumpy from here. Um, that's where it's all kind of gone a bit wrong. Um, the more hills, and I can't do hills, and I'm blowing out at the top and I've got nothing to catch up. So basically I've got 50 minutes to do 14 miles, which I, yeah, gutted. I think the dream is over. They, there is some, I heard some lovely rumor that the last five miles are um, downhill, uh, but I don't even think that'd be enough to make it the time. But hey ho, uh, I'm gonna go for six hours 10. And if I can get that, uh, there's been a couple of accidents, a couple of major ones. Uh, thankfully, uh, I've not been involved with them, but I hope the people are alright. Uh, but as you can hear now, starting to feel it now. Uh, I think I've drank and eaten all I possibly can. Uh, so yeah, I will um, update you in about an hour's time, with my time. Cheerio! Well, that's it. I've just finished. 102 miles and a little bit more in... 5 hours, 59 minutes, and a few seconds. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I think I might have even clocked 101 or uh, by the time it um, it ticked over because I was a bit paranoid because I didn't trust the GPS and all that sort of stuff and deliriously tired. So, yeah, I can't believe it. Scraped through by the skin of my teeth. And I can't say just how absolutely amazed I am. Uh, just... What an achievement. I just, I'm a little bit speechless. Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.